I don't want a pickle, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode number 128. I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Coming to you from Moto1 Podcast Network Studios Suite X, which is also Nokomoto Podcast Headquarters. Here, deep in northern Colorado, where we had another one of our 300 Days of Sunshine that we get every year here in northern Colorado. It's Black Friday. I didn't do any shopping, as most people didn't. Instead, we're doing a podcast. So, let's get into what we're going to do in this episode. We're going to do Best Worst Bike, obviously. After that... Um, I think you've got a bike that you want to talk about, Swigs. And we're finally going to do a breakdown of the MotoGP. Uh, the silliest season, I think we should call this year. Right? Yeah. Uh, is there a better word for it? A better term? It's been the silliest season. Because it's been a silly season since before the season started, right? Yeah. Um. And it was just such a wacky year. But I, I think I'm ready to break down what happened now. It makes we, more yeah. sense. We started off insane, and then it even went off those rails. Right. I, I think we can take a 1,000-foot view of it now and sort of point out some things that kind of make sense. So, whew. Uh, oh, and finally, we might be announcing a ride. We'll see. We have a big concept for something, and we're going to need listener feedback on how good or bad an idea this is, I think. We'll see. So, are we ready to get into Best Worst Bike? Let's do it. Okay. Woo. Here we go. Here's how this works, if this is your first episode. Each week, me and Swiggy each pick a different motorcycle. We don't know what the other has chosen. It's always a surprise. One of them is going to be the best bike in the world, and one of them is going to be the worst bike in the world. But just for this week, next week there'll be different ones. Okay, these are not these are not titles that stand forever. Okay, you. It's like you can't really judge a man today on what he said yesterday, right? You can't judge any of these podcasts on our on our previous judgment, right? It's just every week a new take on a bike that maybe you didn't really look at that way before. It's just a fun way to look at two motorcycles in a different light. And if you've got a problem with that, just remember the cow says there's no crying in motorcycles. So, Swigs, you have worst bike in the world this week. Yes. Are you ready to reveal it? Absolutely. Okay. Hit me with it. What have you got? You're not going to give me the drum roll? Oh, that's right. Jeez. Drum roll. Amateur hour. And the worst bike in the world this week is? The Honda CBR650R. Essentially, again. I love this bike, though. I its know. only problem is it costs too much. It solves all the problems of 600 Supersports. This is true. But now, 
the the problems it has have escalated even more. But but it's a 650 practical and it's a legit super sports. This is true. Just barely fits into the category of super sport. Just barely. By the fucking skin of its teeth. It's not really a 650 class bike, but it's not really a super sport either. It's the compromised 600 that we've just been dreaming about for years. It is. And if it had, in a good economy, it would totally work. And if they had found some way to make the price a little bit easier to stomach, then absolutely. But this is a bike that will, that has no prestige. It doesn't really even fit into the 650 class. You can't race this against 650 twins. Right. It's not overall really a practical bike in terms of that it gives you anything more than an SV650 does in terms of you know carrying in terms of storage in terms of torque in terms of cost it's really just it's the, got a little bit more comfort being it, fared with its aerodynamics it's a little more wind yeah. protect you can ride this longer than an SV a little bit yeah but it's, it's not supremely comfortable but it's not giving you much for an extra $2500 this bike is $9,700. Now, well, it depends which way you look at it. For a 650 class bike, that's terrible. For a super sport, that's the bargain of the century. That comes in a couple hundred bucks less than the ZX6R, which obviously blows this away in performance, but they're both surplus to needs. This gives you everything like a ZX6R does, except the ability to 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 win um, uh, roll-on contests on the highway. Yes. And if you could do it for less than $9,700, I'd be super into it. But this bike has never accepted... This bike has never found its slot in the market. You know, everyone says, oh, well, this is great to ride, and I've ridden one, and I love it. But I don't $9,700 love it. I don't love it more than spending a couple months searching for a good used F4i. I don't love it more than really just hunting down any well-taken-care-of inline for Supersport. Yeah, if you think about what it does, it's just a new F4i is what it is. And it's also 25 horsepower less than an F4i. No, an F4i was like 100 horsepower. Put about 90 to the back wheel. This has got to be what, 88, 90 horsepower? Uh, 85. 85? Okay, so it's 15 less. Yeah. <sighs> And now we're we're now kind of moving to this age where, you know, with the R6 being discontinued, with a whole bunch of premium parallel twin motors showing up and becoming very popular very quickly, with the price of, you know, 801 liter parallel twins coming way down to essentially 
what an R6 or a CBR600RR uh, costs. I don't think there's a place in the market for this anymore. It made sense when you would buy an inline four super sport for $13,000. It doesn't make any sense anymore. And I don't think it will for another 10 years. If we're even still doing the super sport thing at that point. So, the my issue with this bike is that I I really place a lot of value on the fairings. It doesn't look like it does that much on a bike like this. It really does. I think it's a nice little premium thing that it, you know when all your friends are riding around FZ07s and new Triumph Tridents and shit like that. Well, I mean, I don't think we're even going to get the Triumph Trident in this country. But whatever. I think this sits nicely with the Aprilia 660, for example. So I do think at some point this bike will be a good deal. But it sort of has to be like, um, you know, like six months after the fidget spinner craze when... Everyone who's holding on to one of these, every dealer who's holding on to one of these realizes that nobody's willing to pay MSRP for it. You might be able to pick one of these up with zero miles for like seven grand. And then it'll be a sweet bike. But I've seen 2016 models like a year or two ago go for eight grand. Uh, I don't even know if those ones even have ABS. No, I've seen I've seen an ABS model go for eight grand. No miles, just leftover stock. No one could get rid of it in a Harley dealer. But yes, I've seen but it. That's still a lot of money for something that isn't selling. I don't know. I mean, it's. You know, that's fifteen hundred dollars off the pro- off the top. It's it's the dealer making no profit, just having to move it. It's it's a still a Honda. It still does a hundred and twenty miles an hour or whatever. It still accelerates faster than any car. And I'll tell you, having ridden one of these, um, the zero to sixty is better than an old F four I, and it's better. It feels better than a CBR six hundred double R. Now, after 60, yes, it's there's a little less there, obviously. But uh, the promise of this bike is it's going to be like a, a double R 600 up to 60 or whatever. And then after that, yes, it's going to be less. But for most practical uses in town, right? And unless you're racing against an, an, a true super sport on the highway or whatever – it's gonna it's gonna deliver all those great super sport things, but for a few grand less, you know, at least two and a half grand less, and it's gonna do it with more reliability, a little more grunt off the line. You know, the torque just kicks in earlier on this. It's all mid range on this bike. It's not so much top end. And I mean, the needle does rise faster than it does on an old on an old F four I. Right, I mean, we love F4Is, but they're like 25 years old. We're getting close to it. You know, I 
this is a wonderful bike, but your point that it doesn't make sense for today's trends, I have to admit is true. It's a wonderful machine. And I think if you think of it, not so much as the best 650, but the most practical super sport, I think the price even makes a lot of sense. It's just that <sighs> you're right. It, it's it's completely against the trend style wise. Right. You know, th these arguments would never work against the CBR 500R because that bike is I there must they must be selling you know tens of thousands of those every year. Like they're yeah. all over the place. And even if they weren't, it's so almost it's it's just a different it's just different bodywork on a CB500, you know, um what's the the Rebel? What's the the CB500R versus the yeah. CBR500R? It's their naming system's really fucked up or the right CB500X. Like it's yeah. it's it's all the same. Well, that's the one they're really selling, but yeah, I have to say this also, there is one other problem with this bike. As far as I know, besides the Goldwing, which this may not even be true if they put out another Valkyrie, this might be the only Honda engine right now that's only in one bike. Uh, no, there's a CBR, there's a CB650R. That's the same motor. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay. But I think it's just those two. Which is also fairly limited because I don't think they have. Yeah, there's no Rebel 650 because that makes no sense. There's no. Um, yeah, I think it's just the two models. Yeah, which is sort of un Honda underutilizing something. You know, they could make they could make a lateral move and turn this into like a, an inline four shadow. Mm. Is that how they redeem the shadow? I mean, Honda doesn't really have a sort of hooligan 650-700. They don't have a Ninja 650. They don't have an MT-07. They don't have... Honda doesn't have that. They're going to need that. I wonder if they're going to kill this and the 650 and make the 650 a twin instead. Or is Honda just going to go inline fours are so much a part of our heritage? Is Honda going to keep the inline four alive and make it as much a signature as Triumph does with its threes. I think I, I think it makes more sense for Honda to make a killer 650 parallel twin. Certainly right now it does. But think, if every other manufacturer drops their 600 inline fours and makes them just non-street legal race versions only... Well, then Honda's the only one left doing inline fours, really. Well, right? If Suzuki will hold on as long as they can. Maybe. I, I guess may, maybe Suzuki will just take up all of that market. The Jixer will be the only super, real super sport. Mm. Look, Suzuki will just tell everyone to go fuck themselves and go back to parallel twin two strokes. I get this is a tough pill to swallow because I really like this bike. This has sort of been an idealized thing. This is this is one of those things where I talked about how the world needed this bike 
and then it became available. And I was like, holy shit, here it is. What a wonderful thing. And, you know, it's too bad I've already owned a bunch of 100 horsepower inline four 600s. Um, you know, I'm just on a journey to ride everything and own every other kind of bike. But at whatever point I want another 600 inline four, this is right at the top of my list. I think there there will be a lot of charm to this bike, but I feel like it missed its window. It they tried it in a lot of different ways, but you know the price and the practicality and you know it. I don't think it got anybody to really pull the trigger. I've never seen one of these out in the wild. I've seen plenty uh, at shows. I've seen plenty in the dealership. I've never seen one out in the wild. Yeah, and just for $300 more, you get so much more power at the top end with the ZX6R. Which I have seen tons of. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you're right. It it doesn't make any sense anymore. And it should have, but we're old fogies that love sport bikes. Yeah, we just have to come to terms with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> we ready to go to best bike in the world this week? Let's do it. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is... The 1948 to 1971 BSA Bantam. Which so, displacements? Any of them. It's 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 been an evolving thing. It started as a one two five and it ended life as a one seven five. So this is the quintessential British small bike. It just is. But it's so much more interesting than that, right? So let's break this down. The BSA Bantam was started started in 1948. And it's funny because it wasn't even really a BSA. It is actually a German bike, a DKW RT125 a sort of proto-BMW kind of thing. And as part of war reparations, basically the the patents, the blueprints of this were just distributed around, right? So funny enough, loads of people made this bike. I think even like Honda made a version of this. Loads of companies made them. But for whatever reason, it's the BSA version that history really remembers. Uh, I think I can't remember if it was Yamaha or Suzuki made one of these called like the Hummingbird or something like that, and um, you know various other British companies made it. But the BSA Bantam is the version. Uh, that's not the bike that you've got pulled up there. That's not it. Um, no, that's not it either. So, yeah, that's, no, go back, go back, go, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's abandoned. All right, so it starts off in 1948 as a 125. It's a two-stroke. It's a three-speed. Maybe it was a two-speed even just to begin with and became a three-speed, I think. 
just four horsepower, a modest four horsepower, supposedly capable of about 40 miles an hour. Now, this doesn't sound like all that much, but you have to understand that Britain after World War II was so different than America after the Second World War. You know, the U.S., except for Pearl Harbor, was really just untouched by the war. All the infrastructures there and, and the, um, you know, the U.S. had been selling so many weapons to both sides before it became involved in World War II as well. So the U.S. was just in this amazing financial spot and Britain was just brought to its fucking knees, right? I mean, rationing went on well after the war. Just things were things were literally bombed, you know, in the UK. Right? The infrastructure was not great. Roads weren't even that great before the war, right? Let alone yeah. after. I mean, in a lot of places, they still aren't that great. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you know, ima- you know, those those roads are still really freaking narrow. So imagine those little country lanes and everything. And the outskirts of these towns and even the small roads within these towns, right? You know, around places like Small Heath and, and Birmingham and stuff. You've got these factories pumping out these bikes and selling them in great number because this was 60 pounds in 1948, which is like the equivalent mm-hmm. of like two grand or three grand now or something for something that is 40 miles an hour, which – Again, doesn't sound that amazing, but almost nothing did more than 40 miles an hour in 1948. There were 10 to 15 horsepower cars at this time, and they were wildly expensive, right? So this is sort of – the BSA Bantam is sort of Britain's Vespa. Yes. It's – it, you know, it's it's styled after, you know, very much what the the aesthetic of the country at the time, right? Just like the Vespa is very much that sort of Italian aircraft sort of thing. This is the British version. It's we're talking similar power to to things like post-war scooters and, you know, just barely post-war, you know, 1940s, early 50s scooters and things. And, you know, it was a bulletproof little design, Right. It was it was a one two five. I think it was actually a one two uh, a one two one or one two two. So it left room for um, for uh, boring it out and honing many times. You could just run this thing all day, and you know, just break rings and just put more rings in it and bigger pistons and bore it out and just keep going. Right? You bought this and it just lasted quite a while and. They didn't just leave it there, right? So I think it turns into a so I think it makes it through most of the fifties is the one two five. Let's see here. It goes to yeah, nineteen fifty-four, it goes to a one fifty. And it gets up to five horsepower and it can do fifty miles an hour now. Okay. Well uh, oh. just to just a little bit of a, a side a little bit of a tangent here. We were almost not born because of one of these bikes. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Granddad had one with a side uh, with a no. Uh, did it have a sidecar? He I didn't have did. a sidecar. No, but he was right. He he bought one of these in his um, 
you know, in his mid twenties and he was riding one to work and, you know, he had like an old style, like satchel backpack with his, with his lunch tin in it. And he was, was saying it like, one of these, I'd always heard it was a BSA 350 single four stroke of some kind, but maybe I'm wrong. I thought it was, a, I thought, I thought he said it was a band, but anyways, it was one of these BSAs and he, he was going around a corner and like got unsettled by some wind around an old country lane with a bus coming the other way. I think he panic braked, locked it up, went down and his backpack, like his lunch bin, his lunch pail in his backpack got squashed down into sheet metal, like still on his back. <laughs> and then he sold his bike the next day. Well, anyway, <laughs> which I don't blame him for. But well, so uh, so the interesting thing about this bike is is sort of the development. It's so much. It stayed so much of the time. So you know, it's this very much sort of pre-war design that just sort of made it through the war as this workhorse, right? For for the Germans, and it comes here, becomes an icon, and it's still a rigid frame, you know, which is like a plunger on it. And then in 1956, it gets a swing arm, right? The engine kind of stayed the same basic design, but the frame kept improving and getting better and better. So when you find pictures of these Bantams, you know, there's D1 through like D8 or D10 or something like that, and or D14 even, and they're all they've all kind of got more personality. They they're there's not one Bantam, there are just a lot of Bantams. So it gets up to eventually in 67, a 175 two stroke making 10 horsepower. So now we're talking Vespa power, right? Well, I mean, we always were, but it, it kind of kept with the scooters, right? In terms of power, like, of course, it's not the most powerful thing, but totally usable for the time. And, you know, eventually these things would do like 65 miles an hour, which again, in the late 60s, that's a, that's a that's a respectable speed, right? Yeah. No, you know, did they often ever really achieve that? Probably not on those little windy roads, and you know there aren't any big motorways and and all that sort of stuff. But it just stayed rele- relevant for so long. What other bikes from 1948 survived until 1971? I can't think of a single one. Mm, I can't either. Right. I mean, these things are not really thought of as all that collectible. They're not thought of as maybe all that significant by a large group of people, but they really are. I, you know, if you really want to call yourself a British bike enthusiast, you should be proud to own one of these. It's tiny. I look, Harley Davidson made one of these, but it didn't take off. Right? Mm. There's one of these that was Harley badged in like, you know, the, the mid fifties. And it just it just didn't take off. It it's there's some sort of magic with Britain, you know, with, with BSA making it 
and you know, employing the people and selling them to their own workers and it becoming really a lifestyle thing, truly a lifestyle thing. It being something that makes them mobile. It being the thing that gets them to work every single day. It being the thing that lets them work in places more remote from their home, right? To go to where the work is because the work is so scarce, right? Mm. It being that amazing um, cheap price point. It being I just all these things, right? You know, well, it, people weren't because people were taking out loans to buy these. Yeah. They could just afford to buy them even though they were poor. Well, yeah, it, it's it's a lot like the mopeds in Japan and Italy after the war, which is if your country has had the shit kicked out of it and been bombed back into the Stone Age, like this is your this is your economic kickstart. Like this is mm-hmm. how you bring it back. This is starting from nothing, building back up into a world power economy. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why there's not a lot more people getting misty-eyed thinking about these. And we know that Mahindra owns BSA, and if they were going to bring back something to sell in the UK and build in the UK, they would have to start with something called the Bantam. You know, make yes. it three to four hundred cc's, a single or a twin or something crazy economical um something like that or maybe it's just the cheapest electric or something like that but to capture what the bike is it has to be an every man sort of thing mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know i love it uh i'd love to have one they're exceedingly rare in the states for whatever reason because they I, they made tons of these things just tons of them. I don't have production numbers in front of me, but they they made a lot. Definitely, it's probably one of the most sold British bikes ever. I, I would have to think. Cool. Uh, I don't know. You got anything else on the 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 Bantam? Uh, nope. I think we're ready to move on. Okay, let's put a little break in here and then move on to something else. And we're back. And before we talk about MotoGP, which I know you all want us to do, we're going to do a little brief section on something that kind of reinforces a lot of opinions we had in the previous episode, which is the new prevalence of parallel twins in the upcoming motorcycle market. Because Honda just released, or just announced, the 2021 Rebel 1100. And I think this is incredibly significant and another sign of things to come. So the Rebel 1100 is, besides this being a way bigger bike, uh, is essentially a Rebel 500 styling-wise, a bit larger, with the Africa Twin 
one liter motor in it. Now, if you look at this bike, there's all sorts of interesting things about it. It's incorporating underseat storage. They're releasing a dual clutch model. The price of the manual model is $9,300, with the dual clutch model coming in at ten grand flat. I just want to add here, Honda's producing this this 1100 cruiser with underseat storage honda i see you taking our ideas and still not hiring us yeah (laughs) well well let's think about this for a little bit this is you know if we look at what honda was creating in kind of the the non-flagship but premium market you know, three, four years back, we had things like the VFR 1200X, which was a 1200cc V4 adventure-ish bike with dual clutch. Like, they were kind of going off the rails into all sorts of weird ideas, which when you think about it, is almost sort of like the 2007, 2008 kind of like Vulcan 2000 or Honda Rune style, like insane ideas. You know, we were, we're now, we went up, we had the boom, we had all the insane fringe fetishist uh, fad ideas, and now we're coming back to basics again. And I think this is a really significant milestone in, in saying, well, you know, we sold so many Rebel 300s and Rebel 500s. Those people are going to want to upgrade at some point, And they're not going to spend more than double what they already spent on their small displacement bikes. But let's just scale the idea up. And if you really want to scale it up, you're going to have to keep doing what we've already been doing for 30 years, which is in the budget market same displacement reduce the number of cylinders but keep butt kicking power because what really impresses me with this is it's two and a half thousand dollars cheaper and it's basically honda's indian scout Yes. It's those performance numbers for two and a half thousand dollars cheaper. Now, some people may go, well, it's worth the two and a half thousand dollars to pay for that Indian badge and that legacy fraud. Okay. I love the Indian Scout. I think it's an amazing bike. It makes power in this wonderful way that I'm that I'm really in tune with. It looks super fucking cool, and it makes you feel super fucking cool. But it's not real comfortable. This looks ridiculously comfortable. It's a big. It's it's a big bike. You, you look at the version that has two seats with the dude well, and his girlfriend is. on it, and it does not look like they're crowded. It's big, and it's also cheaper than, and almost twice the power of, a Sportster twelve hundred. 
like this is really this is worrying news for Indian. This is really bad news for Harley Davidson. This bike is unbelievably competitive. Yes. Well, also, it's not all that heavy of a bike. I looked it up before we started the podcast. This bike is 500 pounds dry. So it's lighter than than the Scout, too. It's just going to yeah. go like a scalded cat. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for a cruiser like this, it's going to... It's going to blow the doors off of a lot of other cruisers just yeah. for that horsepower, a hundred horsepower. And like, was it 70 something foot pounds of torque? Uh, I want to say it was 77. Yeah. It's just going to go. It's just going to go. It's going to feel really satisfying. I believe my thinking is that Honda essentially put this bike together in about six months. I think they threw it together super fast, and I think they essentially just made a frame, uh, a slightly bigger fuel tank, and a few different parts to make it all fit together. But I think this is actually like the bare minimum Honda had to put together to put a new bike together. I'm hoping we're going to see some other bikes off of this. Because... It makes perfect sense in that in this economy, are you going to sell a bunch of Africa twins? No. It's a super premium. I mean, it's super premium as a dirt bike. It's a budget bike as an adventure bike. But in either case, that's not what's going to be selling. It's seen as excess. Whereas an 1100cc cruiser is modest. I'm wondering, does it make sense now for them to consider, you know, the NC half a Honda fit motor as the little sister to this and to have a whole parallel line where you could have an NC 1100 or to go even a step further and revive, you know, the PC 800 name and have a PC 1100. If in another year with a bit more development, a different frame, could we have just a standard modest tourer for $10,000 with obscene amounts of storage and a kick-ass parallel twin? I think it makes perfect sense. And I think it's what the market will want in a time when you need to be able to justify a five-figure motorcycle purchase. Yeah, I I also kind of like, we were talking about this before we recorded, I think in your PC800 thing, I think there's a way you can, you can, you go PC1200 silver wing and like you said and like combine all of honda's failed mid displacement touring ideas and just combine them into one twelve thousand dollar package with crazy storage and everything 100 horsepower good performance but it's less torque you know you're not gonna be able to pull a trailer with this it's not gonna have all the crazy gadgets that a gold wing has but it's it gives you 
And it doesn't well, have Goldwing looks either, but it gives you it, an idea that I can cross continents with this, and it's more on a budget, and it really earns that Silverwing name. Well, you know, they call it the the Pacific Coast here or the Silverwing here. They can call it the Doville over in the UK. Exactly. Yeah. Combine all the bad ideas and make them go <laughs> add up to more than the sum of their parts. Well, they all weren't strictly bad ideas. They all just came out at a time that kind of missed their mark a little bit. They're ideas that failed to connect. Yeah. I mean, well, the Doville came out well after we had started to recover. And this budget this budget uh, tour idea wasn't popular. It wasn't a fad at the time. You know, especially like 2011, 2012. It just didn't really connect. Um, and well, I can't talk too much about the PC, but well, the, the nice thing is that we've, we're really making a hard break from everything, from everything being hard performance based. It, it just 18 months ago, it was really important which adventure bike was the best cornering and fastest around the Nürburgring. I don't know why we thought that was important. It's so stupid thinking about it now. Yeah. But honestly, people would like watch, you know, 44 teeth videos and go, oh, well, I didn't know if I was going to get the KTM or the BMW, but it looks like the KTM is more fun around the Nürburgring, so I'll get that one. As if they're ever going to ride around the Nürburgring. As if, like is, like, is this not a vehicle designed to do, like, fire roads and interstates? Why do we care how it handles under, under those other conditions? What were we thinking? Everything had to be just blistering stupid performance and now we're allowing ourselves to go well maybe bang for buck is pretty cool as well yeah i want alloy wheels as well i don't want spoked i want i want no i want like proper old school corny mag wheels well that's yeah that's what this has (laughs) this this rebel now i'm not in love with the styling here but we have to understand that maybe that's a good thing. Well, this is a bike for thing. new it's bike buyers. It's this also is, the easiest thing to change without inflating the cost. Yeah, presumably there's going to be a lot of aftermarket for this. I mean, I don't think it looks any worse than the Sportster 1200. I don't think it looks any worse than a Vulcan S. I don't think it looks any worse than, I mean, a lot of things. Um, To really kind of get a grip on how this thing looks, I'm going to need to see one in person. I think this is one of those bikes that pictures don't translate very well. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of get a vibe that we, this is something that might sell a lot now and 15, 20 years on it's going to have sort of a, a Virago dated vibe to it. Or like a CBR 1000C or CB 1000C. Yeah. 
I, I think this is a bike that's going to look very, yeah, CB1000 custom or CB900 custom or Virago. It's going to have that kind of vibe 15, 20 years from now. But for right now, I think it's going to sell well. But who knows? Maybe I'm just completely wrong. Again, I still think fully fared sport bikes are the tits, right? And I'm an old man for thinking that. But, you know... There's no way to stay in touch until you admit that you're out of touch, right? <laughs> you've got we've got to yeah. let let the healing and learning begin, right? Once I was with it, and then I didn't know what it was. What's the Simpsons quote? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's probably one of the greatest Simpsons quotes. Of all well, there's a Frank Zappa uh, quote that really sums this up. He said, "I hate these young producers." Back when all the producers were old, they would just go with what the kids thought because they knew that they didn't know what was cool. Now all these young producers think they know what's cool and what's good, and they don't. <laughs> that's a good one. And that's not word for word correct, but there's a Frank Zappa quote that's 90% that. And yeah. So sometimes just knowing you're out of touch can make you more in touch. So well, we'll see. We'll see. But I, yeah, I agree. There's big implications from this bike. And I, I haven't seen a bike hit the market immediately this competitive in terms of performance and price for a hot minute. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm ready to move on. All right, let's put in a little thing, and then let's come back with GP Talk. All right, we're just going to roll right into it here. Here we go. Oh, a thousand-foot view of the 2020 MotoGP season. Oh, so the first thing about this season is it was the silliest season, before the season even started, in testing, Honda dropped Alex Marquez. And then Alex Marquez didn't entirely, but he almost did a Lorenzo, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, Lorenzo moved to Ducati, and it was the worst thing ever. Everyone was like, "This is there's no hope. And then halfway through the season... He got that other tank, and we it just turned it on. We should probably back up and just start from start the story from the beginning. Okay, yeah, yeah. the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like every other sport, we didn't know it was what even was going to happen, and then we settled on these minimum thirteen races because I guess in the rule book you had to have thirteen races to have a championship. Yes. You could have a season, but you couldn't uh, – uh, for the FIM, you cannot cha uh, crown a champion without 13 races for whatever reason. But that's how so it goes. we went to Qatar. We didn't even have a MotoGP race because all the riders were not in the country in time. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we got – a sweet little taste of Joe Roberts snatching pole coming forth, which is a little disappointing, but otherwise, you know, just a nice little interesting start to the season and then nothing for months. Yeah. 
We have our first race back. We have Marquez on pole. We have him getting off to an amazing start, as per usual. Almost dumping it in the gravel after overshooting a turn. Well, hold on. That save was so... Was it even the first race? I thought it was the second race he went out. Was it first. the first? Wow. So so he does a classic Marquez lose the front, saves it with his knee, but he gets the bike back up while he's still going sideways, goes into the gravel trap sideways at what? 90 miles an hour. Probably still maybe 70 to like on the low end. Ridiculous. Way too fast. Keeps the bike upright through the gravel gets to like second to last place there. Yeah, it was, I want to say it was like 18th or something. Yeah. It was dumb. And then over the next five, six laps, makes his way back to about third or fourth place. He was in podium contention when he went down again in the exact same place. In, if you haven't watched it since it happened, I mean, rewatch it. It's a brutal crash. I watched it yesterday in slow-mo with dad and we were just like oh that there's one of the breaks we're going like frame by frame there it's like oh you could see the shape of his arm just doing unnatural things and that part where the bike hits him again like in the middle of it like oh it's so brutal when i watch it it reminds me of the the it's so just even in the footage in the high definition definition footage it's so percussive that it it reminds me of when i uh snapped my collarbone yeah like i when i see that footage i feel like when my when i snapped my collarbone i uh, yeah like it's brutal it's so brutal so Marquez thinks he's going to race again, but it, it, it took him a minute. It, he had, he, Marquez was like saying, I'm going to come back and race. Like, like it sort of in the similar way, like Trump can't admit that he lost. He's like, no, no, I'm <laughs> coming back. And, and, and then all of a sudden he's not there. And it's like, no, no, the next race, he's going to come back. And it's like, no, you're not. I think, I think there's a 60% chance. Mark Marquez is just, just done full stop i mean he will come back and race i think his i think his podiums might be over his certainly his 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 dominance is over i i don't know how you have that kind of injury stay out for this long and then come back as sharp as ever but who knows he's mark marquez he might do it but i think the odds are that he's going to be out long enough like how do you keep your mental game right how do you, after that, and after spending a year and a half out or whatever, however long he's going to be out, knowing it's because you push it to the edge every single moment, you know, it, it's not like other riders couldn't, like, weren't capable of doing what he did. It's just that he's able to do it for six laps where most of the riders could ride that fast and overtake that many people for two or three laps before they would crash, Right. He, he was just doing something unsustainable, right? The, the commentators were on such a high 
of saying, oh, this is the most amazing writing we've ever seen. And, and no, it's just all the other writers could do it too. They just have better risk management. It's like um, there's a great scene from um, oh shit, what's it called? Uh, from Silicon Valley, where you know the the CEO of the company that's essentially Google just says, you know, sometimes I feel like I've just surrounded myself with yes men who are too afraid to express to me what they really feel. What do you think? He's like, well, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> right. Like he, yeah. There, there is this bubble around him, even if he is the best writer in the world. There, there's this weird bubble around him, and reality. He's the golden goose. Like, yes. There, there. He has a diff. There's a different refractive index around him. Mm-hmm. Light doesn't shine quite the same way as it does around everybody else, and it's artificial. Even if there is something authentic underneath it, right? So yeah, we're we're gonna see what happens with Mark Marquez next year. But I think most people kind of quietly know it's not gonna go great but we'll see we'll see you know i certainly don't wish his career to be over that'd be a dickhead thing to wish but because of his absence his absence was a huge part of this series so the other huge part of the series most notable thing is back-to-back races at the same tracks i love and hate this i think that it's a little too close you know, I, I love it in Moto America. I love it in something like World Superbike. Having, you know, it's not two races back to back day the same weekend, but it's a similar effect having it having back to back weekends. And I love it for a league that you presume to be less prestigious, where there's a promotion aspect to it, or there is a feeder aspect to it. At the highest level, I would have thought that I would love to see more MotoGP in a shorter time frame. And it turns out that it's not true. It feels like eating... You know, it feels like... It feels like having a Dairy Queen ice cream cake every week. Right. You're like, oh, you know what? It would be super fun to just eat like a gallon of ice cream over the weekend. And I'd love it, but I'm just not, I just don't want to put the pounds on. It turns out after like the first pint, you want to kill yourself. Like it's <laughs> too much. And it takes away, you, you don't realize how much you savor as much as you feel like it tortures you. When you have to go two or three weeks without watching a race, you don't realize how much you you appreciate the anticipation until the anticipation itself is gone. So I mostly agree, but because it was the only way the season was going to happen this year, I'm glad it happened that way. 
Yes. I'll take it this way over no season a million times over. Now, if it became the norm, yes, I would find it tedious. But it was exciting. But also, I, yeah, it's been difficult to, to, to digest what's happened every single week. And a lot of it's blurred together. And that's not great. Now, well, yeah, because you can go two races without talking to anybody about the last race. Mm-hmm. Well, and then also you said at the beginning you were, you you were complaining that it was getting really dangerous. They finally got a hold on that by the end yeah. of it, but it was in the beginning enough of a shakeup that it what there were crazy amounts of crashes and injuries. It, it got sorted out by the end. They made the adjustments, but it was a little touch and go for a while. The first six rounds was just carnage. The first, yeah, the first seven rounds had what, like four red flags, something like that. It was nuts, especially that one where Rossi, like, uh, we nearly lost Rossi. We people. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we nearly <laughs> lost. It was like an inch and a half. And <laughs> we were gonna lose Rossi. And well, not only, and Vinales, like we almost <laughs> lost them both at the same time. It was nuts. Yeah, it it was. There was a certain point where it was like this is out of control. <sighs> like, you know, two races might have red flags back to back, and you're like, well, this is just some crazy shit that happened. But after a little, there there was a trend going on. For, for anyone was, that missed it, there was this there was this race where um, it was a really really um, fast turn, and then a straightaway with a r- crazy deceleration into a very slow turn, and so Zarco and. Um, Oh, bu- 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 Brazilian Italian Morbidelli got into a crash, and their bikes in the crash went through the gravel trap in between these two turns faster than the than the the bikes were moving on the track because they were decelerating so hard into a slow corner. So these bikes that were in the middle of crashing, like Morbidelli's bike just went on was just being was just ghost riding by itself and caught up to <laughs> to Rossi <laughs> and Vinales. And then it's like started cartwheeling right as it hit the track from the gravel. And it flew in front of Rossi's face and literally missed him by an inch and a half in front of his face. It's the footage is just unreal. Uh, and you see, and it doesn't matter how many times you rewatch it, you watch it in slow motion, you take a breath and <laughs> you know the bike's going to miss him, but you're like, <gasps> it's so close. Well, let's also not forget like, not only was not only was everybody like just hungry for a result with Marquez being out, but there were all sorts of checks and balances that were not occurring. Like the very next race, uh, Vinales had to just jump off his bike because his brakes completely failed. Yeah, because he. Used a piston and caliper that Brembo said not to use, but he just said, fuck it, let's go for it. Yeah. Like, 
there were so many crashes. I mean, Yamaha was running out of engines. That was one of the the sort of unknown reasons why Quadraro dropped off so bad. Um, so many things. So another huge part of this season and another reason that things were thrown into chaos is because of COVID. There were limited amounts of crew in the pits. Yes. I kind of liked this. I think it's a great model if everyone knows what is going on. Now the adjustment has been made. I think we could keep going with it. I think if you start a season and you prepared for a season with this as the rule set, awesome. I don't think it's good. as I don't think it worked out well for this season, but I think it, it's promising. I think it's a reason we saw two satellite KTM wins. Yes. I think it's a reason we saw, what, four or no, six, six satellite Yamaha wins? Well, technically we saw three KTM wins in total. Right. It was a really good year for KTM, but we'll get, that, we'll get to that in a minute. I mean, across all three series, Moto2 and 3 and GP, it was a great year for KTM. But... I think this was a leveler. I think this did something to take a lot of power away from Honda and Yamaha. And ultimately that's good because, you know, just the money can, can has just made, but how many seasons was it just, well, either Yamaha or Honda are going to win it. And now it could be Suzuki. It could be KTM. It could be Ducati, right? On any given weekend, so many people were competitive for these wins this year because of this leveling out. I'm really into it, right? We had nine winners this year. Nine. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's interesting. Again, I am glad to have witnessed this season in person, you know, to have been here for this. I don't want to see it again. Oh, of course. Well, that's the thing. Every every season is is that, right? This season was kind of so spectacular because we've had some kind of blah seasons for the last two years with Marquez just running away with things with, okay, KTM's in development, but it's such a snail's pace. And, right? Mm -hmm. So just the chaos of this year was really compelling. You really didn't know, and you knew you didn't know what was going to happen, right? Right. But you know what? Every movie can't be Transformers, okay? <laughs> it was fun the first time. It was bearable the second time. Was it bearable the second time? <laughs> it was not for me. It. You didn't want to hurt yourself. But... Okay, look. Mm, okay. Let, let's just pick a new element uh, of this year again. So, yeah. so again, the, the, the nine winners, right? You know, Oliveira winning twice and winning a home GP. I, really fun, right? Yeah. Bender with that very commanding win. It was just his weekend, right? Um Everyone thinking that Quadrar was going to win, uh, which and then the implosion. Look, right. First three races, 
you were a fucking retard if you didn't think that Cordero had a 95% chance to win the season. Exactly. Four races later, what the fuck is Cordero doing? Yeah, and then Vinales falling apart. Uh, and then it was, oh, well, now it has to be Rins. And then it turned out to be Mir. Yeah. I, <laughs> We've got a fucking Suzuki 1-2 world championship position. Who saw that coming? And a rookie win. A rookie championship win. First since Marquez. First since Marquez. Unbelievable. And... He and he only won one race. That's yeah. amazing as well. I, you know, consistency counts. Now it sucks, but you you cannot deny it. And everyone has said everyone wanted to like totally squash this in the beginning when when uh, all the Honda reps said it. But it is absolutely true, and you cannot deny it. This season. 100% has an asterisk next to it. I disagree. I think the chaos, with even without Marquez, was so much to under, overcome that the, the consistency counts. That's bullshit. I don't no. think so. No. I think there was still so much to overcome because all these seasoned racers, I, no one else... Could uh, no one else was able to put together anything resembling consistency, nor the champion. Well, no, like it, he, he, I mean, mathematically, yes, objectively, that has no, to objectively, be the case. It, yeah, <laughs> objectively, he did. There's no are you can't say that's that, yeah, but somebody had to. Well, right, but it it, it was mere. He he put it, it would have, it's literally impossible for somebody to not win. The season. Look, it was a big <laughs> ask to just complete, like you know, eleven of the thirteen rounds this year, just to finish. Right, but this is also not the game that everybody signed up for. That's true, but you know, part of part of it is just you know, put, get putting your head down and pulling something out of your ass when like it's a crazy situation. That's how it works. That's racing. It it's. Uh, Yes, this is not normally how it is for an entire season, but guess what? That's how it goes. You know, we'll see how it happens next year. But you know, he won a race. This is I. I feel it's weirdly a lot like um, um, uh, Nikki Hayden's uh, championship. Now that wasn't a season that was crazy because of um, of. Uh, the the race conditions themselves being crazy but think about the people that were racing at the time everybody was cutting up everybody right there were a lot of winners that year and yeah Nikki Hayden didn't win the most races but when everyone else was just racing hell for leather and it was crazy and they were cutting each other up and it was highly competitive he was the most consistent it's the same thing it's just it was this year because the race conditions themselves were crazy, but the but the 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 grid was just highly competitive because everybody was up for the win every single weekend, just like when Hayden won. We're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one. Mm, yeah, I think it's legit. I think it resembles Hayden season a lot more than an asterisk, but. 
whatever. I mean, it's still a championship. But yeah, I, we can't say that, you know, toe-to-toe, all things being equal, this was a straight-up win. A straight-up... Like, Vinales has no excuse for not winning this one. Oh, absolutely. Vinales had the experience. He had the team. He had the bike. Yamaha clearly fixed a lot of their problems. And then Rossi and, and Vinales just imploded because Quattararo for the first half of the season was on fire and Morbidelli through the second half of the season was almost on fire enough to pick up you know, a championship win. If there were three, two more races to the season, I think it would have gone to Morbidelli no problem. If it was a full 18 races, I think this is Morbidelli's year. Yeah, and this is where I, I would love to see the drama and also the rational decision of Yamaha ditching Vinales and just continuing to poach Suzuki riders. Yeah, yeah that's a very smart move. Well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, well, is the factory team even going to be better than that Patronus Sprinter team? Uh, Patronus is a gigantic name in racing. Uh, let, let's not let's remind people that Patronus Mercedes has been the most dominant Formula One team like ever. This is this is this makes Red Bull money look like lunch money. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I kind of wonder: is it a bad move for Quattararo and Morbidelli to go to the factory team? I'd I'd feel pretty comfortable on that Sprinta team. Yeah, it is sort of a yeah. It is um, you know, establishing dictators level of funding. Yeah. <laughs> It just appeared out of nowhere and started kicking ass and taking names. I, I so many satellite wins this year. That was a big deal for me. Um, so let's talk about KTM because um, we haven't mentioned any Moto Two or Moto Three, but KTM with crazy wins all over the place. Yes, I think KTM has solved some very serious uh, setup issues. Because especially in in uh, GP, they've had, you know, they've they've always had the horsepower. Right, but like, but the bike KTM, just wouldn't fucking turn. KTM has never as Zarco struggled. famously said, it K- won't fucking turn. <laughs> yeah. KTM has never had an issue creating a good motor. They are they're amazing. But can they put the whole package together, you know, and and turn it around on a dime? Well, they did in Moto3 for a long, long time. Uh, Historically, they've been super strong in Moto3, going back to to even before Brad Bender, right? I mean, as long as I've been watching GP, they've been a contender in Moto3. I mean, yeah, there was that there was the year or two where they had Alex Marquez on that cheater Honda bike, but other, I mean, KTM's either been the best bike or a very, very close runner-up all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Now, 
I mean, I know there's not a wide variety of things, but K- KTM's never been far behind, if not on top, in Moto3. In Moto2 last year, they started putting together some wins. This year, I think, as a frame manufacturer, right up there with Calyx. I think it's yeah. a fully viable option now in Moto2. I, It's not a handicap. You don't need the Calyx frame anymore. You can have a KTM. The Suda frame, you're still fucked. But that's just how that's going to go. And the MV frame, also, you're fucked. I I just have to eat it. That was one of the worst predictions of all time <laughs> made by me that the MV frame would be good. But, hey, you know, it, I'm, it takes a big man to admit when he was wrong, Swiggy. So, <laughs> so now KTM's pulling out three wins over the season, right? I mean... Has Suzuki had more than three wins in a season? Uh, well, Rince won twice, didn't he? I think they matched I meant it. before this year. Oh, before this year? No. Right. Uh, KTM is caught up to Suzuki's progress, and if they keep on this role, will eclipse Suzuki's progress next year, which we all have agreed was way faster than we thought it was going to happen. We thought Suzuki was going to spend a decade in development before they became title challengers. Right. Mm -hmm. And then here we are, what, six years later and they've got the championship. Like boom. Right. X like amazing hats off to them. And I, I think a KTM could do it next year. I mean, is there a strong argument that a particular rider and bike will do it? No. But would you be shocked after this year hearing that, you know, if you had a crystal ball to see that a KTM rider and bike wins the championship next year? No. And it's true. This is the kind of year which has made us all question our knowledge of anything and just accept any possible outcome. Well, depend would depend who they signed, but you know, we, we've seen three. We have seen. Well, they're going to get rid of pole, and that's going to be a yeah. good move. Well, they they they've got three. They've got three champion. They've won three races, and they've done it without a single motor exploding yeah it's huge in fact i've never seen a ktm motor blow up in moto gp let me think yeah i not now that i can recall yeah yamaha's been the worst with that by far yeah also why they got called out for cheating that was so weird. I, <sighs> yeah, your motors are blowing up and you're cheating. Like They were cheating in the most benign way, but like, it was really disappointing. It was like they tried to do a Ducati move and it's... The, it, it's like playing a game of volleyball and your server like twists their ankle while stepping on the fault line. And they're out of the game. It's like, oh, also, you lost your serve, by the way. I think it's more when Officer <laughs> Farver put the uh, Officer Farver put the bar of soap in the coffee, right? <laughs> and everyone else is like, great prank. 
you know, like, like Ducati is rabbit on the other hand, like, you know, talk, asking people to say meow and, and, you know, having them pull over when they've all already pulled over. Ducati's the master of it. And, and Yamaha is, is officer Favre putting bars of soap in people's coffee going, see how good I am at cheating. Like, no, not really. You got a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, I, I love a good cheat when, when you know, I, but but bad form, bad form on this one. All right, so we should just follow the plot a little bit and come to a conclusion here because we should acknowledge, and also, if you've got this far and you don't, and you're not aware that you're uh, hearing spoilers, well, one, I'm really drunk. <laughs> What a shocker. Uh, but yeah, we should acknowledge that Mir has won the championship. Out of fucking left field. Like, yeah. how many people had to trip up? <laughs> how how many people had to had to drop the ball for this to happen? And again, Mir is an amazing writer, obviously, because he is the champion. It was like watching a season long episode of wacky races where <laughs> like every single character had a setback, right? And the most unlikely person wins every single time. Like just whoever like, you know, didn't have like an A story, just just slow and steady won the race. You know, it was someone different every week, never dick dastardly. But Right, the winner was always <laughs> yeah. the least covered. You know, you could always tell yeah. who was going to win wacky races because you start crossing them off the list because they weren't being featured, and and that's what happened. Just everybody fucked themselves over, and then uh, out of nowhere, you know, like Snagglepuss just wins, and you're like, that's not even a strong like character, <laughs> and they like, I thought Yogi was going to take this, but nope. Or like, you know, those episodes were like, no, it's like those episodes when Magilla Gorilla won. You're like, I forgot that was even a bracer. I, you know? I'm trying to think like how narrow the band of, of people who will culturally understand this. Because it's people either who are watching cartoons in the 70s or people who are watching Hanna-Barbera reruns through Cartoon Network. It, from like 2000 to 2002. I think when I just made the Wacky Races reference, like eight people literally shit their pants. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah. yeah eight people are, were as excited as when as I was when you made the Grand Chahi reference. <laughs> the Grand Chahi. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I'm gonna say that's uh, that's uh, that's metaphor of the year right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, whew, the so the final thing is with this season. I mean, there's so many incidences and so many things that we've forgotten. But uh, a big thing for me was again, writers being changed, contracts changing, just so much throughout the whole year. So as we're left here, we've got 
we had a record number of Moto3 riders going into Moto2 this year. And I think we've got another record number of Moto2 riders going into GP again this year. Like, out of nowhere, mm-hmm. Joe Roberts might be going to um, uh, Aprilia. Aprilia. That's fucking crazy. Fuck yeah, dude. I it. mean, fuck yeah, but like it's it's a passport ride, but like whatever, it's Aprilia, like who cares? But he but it gets him to the show. Make it work. Fucking rocket. Rocket, you know, yeah. I mean, he's going from one badass livery to another. Yeah. Uh Honda is desperately for some reason trying to hire a cardboard cutout of Abraham Lincoln over Alex Marquez for reasons <laughs> we don't understand. I just fucking admit you were wrong and keep Alex Marquez. He's yeah. getting a grip on that ride. He's figuring it out. He's putting in the work and the fans have cut him some fucking slack. Yeah. Like just admit you were wrong and tell Polis Bargro to fucking kick rocks. He's got a bad fucking attitude, right? Like, and, and here's my problem with Pole. His attitude isn't shitty enough, right? You know how, like, Cal was so salty <laughs> it made sense? Pole is just a bad loser, right? And but he's not a bad enough loser for it to be satisfying. Like I need him to openly like shout out, like call other people out on social media and, and, and say offensive things there. And then I'm on board with him to be like a Honda villain, but he's a B rate villain. I, I don't think maybe he would make more sense if, if we thought Marquez was going to come back strong, look, but I, this is this is a really he's harsh, no Skeletor. This, he's more like a lockjaw. This is a really harsh thing to say, but signing Pole to the factory Honda team is kind of like marrying your ex rebound girlfriend. No, like yeah. it's like they're. It's not that she's a bad person, but there's no future here. Yeah. This is not the way to live the rest of your life. Well, there could be a future if he was at least entertaining. But he's not. Okay. Every person listening to this podcast right now, close your eyes. Do you know what Paul Espargaro's face looks like? Is it a recognizable face to you? I mean, it is to me, but I'm a freak for this stuff, so... But to 90% of MotoGP uh, watchers, I don't think it is. I think more MotoGP riders have an idea of what Kimi Raikkonen's face looks like than they do what Paul Espargaro's face looks like. (sighs) Raikkonen's a total hero, though. Yes, it's also another fucking sport yeah okay like, so let, let's get into more of this so so uh well, who we got from Honda Moto- oh. be brave yeah be brave be fucking brave because uh well ba- uh, so ducati's being fucking brave ducati's bringing in uh bastianini they're br- uh who else are they bringing in uh they're m- moving so i think it's gonna be bastianini and jack miller going to the factory rides is that Fuck right yeah that's gonna be fucking great because you've got like the most chilled out guy on the grid going to one seat and the most like quick to fight guy going to the <laughs> other seat. 
<laughs> like, and and I said this to you, and you and Dad laughed. Like, when did Jack Miller turn into an '80s NASCAR driver? Well, that mustache. Or, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> well, it was about the time that he called uh, a social media fan a cocksucker. No, because he was <laughs> he was really into the um, he he that that was when he was in between the mullet and the shaved head. But he has fully gone on for those like now those like crazy like uh, mid nineties cycling style sunglasses. And, and the cheesy like <laughs> porn stash, it's it's totally eighties NASCAR, absolutely. You know, like the one piece sunglasses, right? <laughs> He's totally gone in for that. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. But uh, he, I mean, he just looks like he's quick to fight now. And that's great. And not even because he's a dick. It's just in his DNA. And I'm totally a fan. And then, again, you got Bastianini, who's just the most, like... I, Bastianini is just, like, mainlining CBD, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so... <laughs> So Ducati is going to be super fun next year because, uh, you know, Miller, again, really fucking close to the championship, super consistent, right? Jack Miller, Mr. Show up for a podium and then crash out on the last two laps, right? That was his MO. Not this year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, riders that really surprised me this year, Darren Binder may have solved his crashing problem. Looks like he's going to Moto2 next year. Like, really cool, right? Uh, there were big stories this year. There were riders that rose to the rose to the challenge of the chaos. Yes. And I wish that I had... I would be open next year to having these double rounds if there was at least a week in between them, right? Just leave the trucks there. You do a race, and then you come back two weeks later to the same track. Mm. Now, now, I, like I understand. Is- I, I want it, I, I want a crash to be expensive. I want it to hurt, and I want it to hurt for like a week before a week or two before I get any resolution in the next results. No, you still have that. I'm just saying you got to build a make the, the make the deli- make gotta, make the data more relevant, which is how you balance out there being less crew. No, no, I. Or no. you say make make the less crew hurt twice as much that it's still a new track every week. I want the the, the lower sample rate to be the fog. I want it to be you, look. You've got to you've got to come you've got to come in with a plan. You got to get all your data in practice plus whatever historical data. Get your result, and if you fuck it up, you got to wait till next year. See, the thing is, though, it's got to. We thought we would see a lot of double winners this year, and we didn't see it at all. And I think the reason is is that the back to back races at the same track was another leveler. It was another way to even the playing field. Yes. So it it ultimately was one of the things that contributed to that many different winners. So when you look at it that way, when a team crashes out, it totally stings because, well, then they're losing the data 
for the it, it really does still double sting because oh we now have incomplete data for race one we're going into race two fucked because everyone else has last year's data and last weekend's yeah well i mean i don't know i we've proven that if we have to we can move to this model and i think it's interesting like let's say you remember um silverstone two years ago when they had to cancel the race well now we know we have a model to go okay silverstone was canceled we're gonna do uh back-to-back races in the czech republic Mm-hmm. to make up for the round. And everyone sort of knows the procedure to go through that. I think it's a I think it's a viable way to keep the season. I, I don't know. I there's so much other racing, there's so much there's so many other stories. I need the one absolute pinnacle formula racing series. I want every every bad result to burn. I want Every win to be a huge high, and I don't, I don't want it to normalize. I don't want it all to blend together with more races, with back-to-back tracks. It should hurt the hardest, and it should be the biggest high. Okay, let's uh, let's move to a couple sort of like one and done questions. Who who across maybe just in each particular series and uh, or, or overall, whichever way you want to take it, which particular rider do you think put up the best performance this year? Ooh. uh, I mean, I still have, uh, that's really hard. Um, I mean, objectively, it has to be Mir, but I want to say... Um, no, yeah, it doesn't have to be objective, just for you. Who really... Who who did you come out of the season going, wow, I didn't know I was going to like this guy this much? Um... Well, here, I'll go oh, first. Yeah. So I always liked Darren Bender. People that have been listening to the show for years know that he's just always been my favorite in Moto3. And it's not just that I like the way he races now. The second half of this season has given me reason to put real stock in him moving forward. And he's just proven that you can have a really aggressive style and really aggressive lines and really um, unconventional lines, kind of like Fanati, and you don't have to be a dickhead to make it work and have people think it's fun, right? Mm. You know, Darren Bender has taken everything that was great about Romano Fanati (laughs) and made it palatable for us and made him really fun. I mean, you got to admit, like, yeah, he he came nowhere close to winning the season. But was there anyone nearly as fun to watch as Darren Bender in Moto3 this year? No. Exactly. I I love, yeah, he's always fun to watch. He's always always fun. Uh, For for Moto2, um. Easy answer. It's Joe Roberts. Well, for you, I, I Joe Roberts. I'm still. I don't. 
he didn't put up the performance like Bender to give me that much faith still. But, you know, we're going to see what happens. It's still exciting. I don't think it's the story of the year for Moto 3, though. Or for well, Moto 2. If you want an alternate for Moto 2, uh, it's Remy Gardner. Re- that's what I was going to say. Remy Gardner impressed the shit out of me. That bike he's riding just fucking sucks. What was it, like the third or fourth round? He got a fourth place and said, me and the team all agree. This is the absolute best that we could do. And then he goes on to just keep getting podiums. And then finally that race win, it was so satisfying. You know, we were saying, like, they must have been just scrambling. Like, do we have a recording of the Australian National Anthem? You know, (laughs) like, it's like when there was, there was like three laps to go. It's like, fuck, load up Spotify. Yeah. (laughs) Who's got Spotify? Like, what are we doing? Is is the Australian National Anthem on Spotify? Like, they were scrambling, right? (laughs) So satisfying. So nice to see him just race the fucking wheels off of that bike and get those results. He absolutely deserves, I think he just deserves a move to, to a GP satellite team based on what he did on that bike. But he needs to be moved at least to a top tier Moto Two team next year. I think possibly KTM would be great for him. I think it, in Moto Two. I think it, it needs another year, but he needs to move up from that team. He oh, needs. Yeah. I think he already is. I, I just can't remember where he is going. Uh, but yeah, Remy Gardner for me, hands down, the my favorite performance of Moto Two. And then for GP. Um, Fucking Morbidelli. What a cool customer. Like I said, if it was a regular 18-race season, I think it was Morbidelli's year. Yeah. He He turned it on on the second half and just gracious to all the winners, went through his podiums, gracious in his wins. Just a lot of fun. Just a cool guy, right? He's He's a classic rock star motorcycle racer. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, you, you said Joe Roberts for Moto two, you agreed Darren Bender for three. Uh, what's your, what's your GP favorite? My GP favorite. Ugh. As much as he was a huge disappointment in the second half of the season, I still have a soft spot for Quadraro. Quadraro is even more of the, the, the rock star racer. Um, no, he is an absurd rock star. It's racer. true. He he. There's <laughs> something about him, like with all the, like the crazy tattoos. What was that fucking? Like, it's also just every time, like he, un, like he doesn't wear an undershirt or anything. Like you can almost see, like he deliberately, like almost shows you his pubes. Oh yeah. Every time he unzips his suit. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. He's got this weird sort of like. French Mick Jagger thing going on, which yeah, is both is. <laughs> horrifyingly disgusting and awful and amazing at the same time. Uh, who did that song? Um, oh, yeah. He, he uh, To me, he kind of reminds me of the lead singer of Buck Cherry. You, you said okay. Mick Jagger, but I think he's more like the Buck Cherry guy as a motorcycle racer. I don't know. I, th- I feel like like physically they have the same body and the tattoos and everything. Uh, uh, and look. sort of weird teeth and mouth shape, but like whatever. You know, 
we we talk about all like you know we we've had we've been doing this this podcast enough to talk about how all the ridiculous cheesy uh you know Marquez champ world championship celebrations he's done I imagine that if Quateraro had won a championship he'd just straight just take his dick out on the track <laughs> who who did and he'd the, get away with it too who who did the um the it wasn't Mir. Who did who did the ice cream thing? Was that the ice cream thing? Uh, yeah, the ice cream celebration. Um, oh, um, oh my gosh! Gee, why can't I? This is a great pod. I know, but <laughs> oh, Google's really not helping me out either. Um, why can't I? It's the, it was the Moto Three, right? Um, it was. Um, uh, I can't uh, help you. Uh, 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 um, oh my goodness! Uh, the Moto Three winner. Um, this is the part where beer catches up with us, and and. Um, I'm just glad it's not my fault. <laughs> It's Albert Arenas. Yeah. <laughs> Arenas did um did uh um he had it was a it was a it was low key. You remember uh, so Rossi has always had the best celebrations, right? And the reason that we don't like the Marquez ones is they're overplanned, right? Rossi's were small but clever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like for Marquez, they would like set up pool tables and things and have these elaborate props and like 20 people involved. And it was all meticulously planned out. At this point, we know this is the result. People in your positions. Whereas Rossi would just sort of basically get the help of one or two friends to like bring one or two props out and he would do something silly. And the Albert Arenas ice cream one was, was on that level. They just pushed out an ice cream cart and had it loaded with a couple tubs and they made a Sunday for him right there. Right. And it was beautiful. And I, I didn't fully get it. I'm sure there's some sort of thing with his name and there's a pun and there's something in there like in Spanish that I didn't fully get. But just him and a couple guys from the team and this this ice cream cart. It was just really fun to watch a nice little clever and simple celebration, sort of Rossi style, rather than like you remember uh, uh, when Marquez for the the sixth title they did the roll of the dice and it landed on the six and it was weighted and he like had to pretend he was super duper surprised it landed on the six and then last year there was the pool shot that was set up just so close it was impossible to miss you know it's it's all too forced yeah i I appreciated albert arenas's little championship celebration there it was good i will say i completely forgot that albert arenas won moto three (laughs) because i have never been less invested in moto three and I, this is something that I should be super. Yeah, into. for us, it was just a year of watching Darren Bender like fix his problems. Is really what Moto Three was for us this year. Yeah, I, 
I felt there there was no there was no reference point in Moto three this year that that we yeah. could I mean, other than McPhee screwing the pooch again. Yeah. Which I guess is kind of a little bit of a flag that you can you can measure from, but I don't know. It, in Moto Two, Sam Lowe's almost got his act together. He came close. <sighs> That's another weird one. Um, so uh, go, leaving GP, Dovi leaving Ducati with no contract. Um, fuck, we've got Cal Crutchlow leaving. Crutchlow leaving, like retiring, but there's some sort of like he's saying he'll do um, he'll do wild cards next year if it comes up. You know, possibly for Repsol Honda, right? Honda should hire Dovi in World Superbike. That would make a lot of sense. Um, hmm. I don't. I, I feel like we've done a pretty good little breakdown of of the most important takeaways of the season here. I think yes. we're in a good setup for a totally uh, updated, very fresh feeling competitive grid next year for for moto 2 and gp we'll see if uh, we get some some really cool breakout talent moving up in moto 3 there weren't you know there weren't really that many big names for it this year we'll see i mean you know but if you think about it logically you kind of want moto 3 to be that way every two to three years right that means it's still a great feeder class it does when it's not a mirror of Moto Two, but look, we'll think like Moto Three. The last couple years has had names, right? It's had yeah. significant winners, and then they were all poached for Moto Two this year. So we had so many fresh faces and non names. You you want that every once in a while. So maybe next year we're going to have more like, oh, yeah, I remember what he did last. Oh, of course. right? It'll be a little bit. There'll be more of those markers next year. I think next, yeah. I think next year with a, a smarter schedule, it's, I think we're setting up for a really good year. I, I think we are. We'll see. We'll see. I, I think so. All right. So let's, uh, let's do our little uh, announcement for our ride idea here in just a sec. I gotta take a quick break. Okay, so we have put our heads together, and we've we, we've been trying to come up with great things to do next year, trying to take in all possible all possibilities of what may or may not happen with events that may or may not happen and all of this right so we'd love to do mid ohio next year but it might not happen there's like a 60% chance it won't happen right like isn't the tt for next year already canceled right something like that and everything's up in the air you know sturgis will happen but it's still going to be this ideological war happening and whatever and there's all these things we want to do, but it, it, we, I, there's no way to know. But we have come up with something that is the highest probability, that has the highest probability of success. And it, it is the intersection of the right timescale and 
going south enough to make the weather work. Right. So we are going to ride our scooters a thousand miles down the Baja Peninsula, take the ferry to mainland Mexico, and then ride them back is what we're going to do. Uh, you say a thousand miles. We are, we're probably already a thousand miles from the beginning of the peninsula, Pete. That's right. We are going to get like a U-Haul. Not a U-Haul. We'll, we'll probably have enough just cars and trailers to make this work, trucks and trailers. We're going to trailer the scooters and probably dad's greaves as well down to the Salton Sea. And then on November 2nd, 2021, we're going to leave Salton Sea and then cross the border into Mexico, do about 200 miles a day, about five hours of riding, have enough time every day to hit the beach or just the local th- scenes and, you know, go to museums or check out architecture or just chill in the towns that we stop at every night. And it'll be two weeks building in a couple days for breakdowns and a couple days for riding, you know, driving out to the Salton Sea and back. 14 days from leaving Colorado to getting back, but about 10 to 12 travel days in Mexico on classic Vespas. Probably sticking mostly to the roads, but there might be a little off-roading here and there. We'll see what happens. We're still playing with the exact route a little bit, but it's about 900 and something miles down to the ferry and about 900 and something back. So... Um, so November 2nd next year is the day of the dead. So we thought that would be the perfect day to cross over as as it were. (laughs) Um, and what we're looking for is possibly, so it's going to be me, Swiggy, Dr. Mike, and possibly dad on his greaves. So what we're looking for is possibly a fifth member of this group. And the requirements are, or maybe even the sixth or seventh as well, but we'll see. But the requirements are, you must be a fluent Spanish speaker, because none of us are. And let's let's be honest, if we're going to add another person to this trip, you need to be a fluent Spanish speaker. Someone's got to be. Second. uh, Big points. Big points. Second, uh, I don't want your vehicle to be over 250 cc's. That... (laughs) You know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna be patched in as a Vesperado like the rest of us, we, we need you to go we need you to be under two hundred and fifty CCs. And personally I'd I'd like you to be on a Vespa as well, but that's a little negotiable. Um third, we I don't need like gas receipts or anything, but we need you to describe to us a pretty hardcore road trip that you've been on before, just so we know that you can hang. And also somehow with enough correspondence, you're going to need to prove to us that you are a pretty decent dude or dudette, right? Yeah. I mean, if you can't speak Spanish and you have no motorcycle experience, then you need to be like an army ranger. Like we, we need to know that you're down for all sorts of insanity, and you're able to cope, at least emotionally. Yeah, if you have if you have very little riding experience, but still own a scooter, um, if you watch uh, C90 Adventures, Alaska to Argentina, 
You need to be a Rachel. You need to be a Rachel. You need to be the most positive newcomer the world has ever seen. You need to like crash eight times in a day and get up smiling every single time. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, But yeah, it's going to be great because we figured out the average temperature in the Baja in November is mid-80s to high-80s, so it's not going to be crazy hot. It's probably going to get super cold at night, so it's only riding during the day. It's only 200 miles a day. Your vehicle's going to need to be in good shape or you know, some sort of reliable mechanical shape. We or will have it needs to share a lot of parts with a Vespa 150. I mean, we're going to have an engineer by degree in trade and a doctor already on this trip. So we got a lot of bases covered, but it'd be nice if your bike isn't just a total shit box. I mean, we're open to the idea, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's going to be fantastic. This it's, it's going to cost like nothing to do. Um, I mean, I'm already a little sketchy about dad bringing in the greaves. Because who's going to have, who's, well, that's going to be a whole thing in and of itself. Dad may have to purchase some shitbox scooter halfway through the trip and abandon or mail off his greaves. The only thing I'm worried about the greaves is I'm not sure what the top speed on it is. I mean, we're probably going to be averaging about 45 miles an hour when we're on the roads. I would think that the Greaves could do insanely it. insanely optimistic. When we're on paved road, I think we can we can hold 45 with the scooters because they'll do 55 or 60. I just don't know if the Greaves will do that. But we'll see. Mm. I mean, when, off-roads, off-road, that bike's going to be the sturdiest hammer. But who knows about on the roads, right? Um, yeah. Well, it yeah. will be until it isn't. But right. So so the, the name of this trip, we've decided, what would we call it? The Road to Vesperado? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to our second point. Should we make this a charity ride? Like, should we invite more than one or two people to join on the idea that you need to get a couple hundred bucks in sponsorship, you know, charity sponsorship in order to join. And that proves that you're serious. Or maybe we just do it this first year, see how it goes, and it could turn into a charity, right? I mean, it sounds dumb enough to say, I'm going to ride a Vespa through the Baja, and people go, fucking what? Right? But it's not that far-fetched either. There are proper roads that go all the way through the thing, right? It's There are many cities and towns throughout the whole Baja. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a large area. It's not just this desert that people race through once a year. And it's not, it's not a dangerous place, you know, for, from a tourism aspect or anything like that. It's nowhere near any of the sketchy border towns or the weird cartel areas or anything like that. Mexico's a, a normal place filled with normal people, right? There are dangerous parts of America, right? There are plenty of places in Chicago you don't want to just casually go to, right? Yeah. Is Juarez all that much worse than Gary, Indiana? 
No. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, yeah. Um, well, also, hmm. we're not going close to Gary. We're not going close to Juarez or Gary, Indiana. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's all going to be pretty chill. It's all going to be very chill. So, uh, yeah, if anyone's got some feedback on this, any ideas, if, anyone's has, if anyone has experience doing a sort of charity ride like this, we've got a full year to plan it and put it together. And I have to think by November 2nd next year, we'll be much closer towards a level of chill. And if we're not that closer towards a level of chill in America, we certainly will be in Mexico. And then, you know, riding through the Baja, I feel like it's sort of hot enough and isolated enough if we want it to be for this to be a safe whatever experience. So there we go. The Road to Vesperado with Nokomoto 2021. Roughly 2,000 miles on Vespas, two weeks, plenty of beer, no rules. whatever right um yeah at least at least four of us are going so you know but hey if you just want to meet up with us at salton sea on november 2nd and ride with us for 100 miles or whatever or just ride with us to the border or whatever that's cool too we'll see it's 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 a developing idea but this is this is the big one we'll probably I don't know, do it in Canada later, you know, like 22 or 23 or something. But I think this is very strong. And, uh, yeah, hey, if you want to volunteer to come out and paint Mexican TV and cartoon characters all over our Vespas before we go, you can do that. Uh, I'm going to go for something that is totally iconic and possibly offensive. If someone wants to get some shipping inf- some shipping address information so you can send us a La Cucaracha horn, I'm down for that. I'm going to have at least like a 4x5 Dora the Explorer sticker on the front of my bike. Nice. Yeah. Um I'm going to let my imagination run wild with with what's going to go on with my bike because it has to be it has to be over the top stupid. We when we roll up, we need to be so goddamn endearing to every toll every toll booth, every border guard, every everything. <laughs> they need to find us hilariously adorable. <laughs> We're yeah. Okay, so we're going to end this episode under two hours again. We're on a roll with that. Um, I don't. Th- or we're going to skip emails for this week. We'll come back to that next week. So with that, this has been episode 128 of the Nokomoto podcast. I've been your host, MotoG Pete. He's been your host, Swiggy. We're going to sign out. Um, oh, one last thing. Uh, I think we are going to release the Mad Max 2 or Road Warrior commentary the week of Christmas. So you've still got plenty of time to get sort yourself out on that. Or not sort yourself out. Just rewatch it the first time again with our commentary. I don't care. It's probably better that way. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah we're going to sign out. Um, just remember... 
stay safe, stay tuned, and keep fighting the dragon. Let's do the outro. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm, cold. 